welcome, welcome to the everyday novelist Nano Gang. Banana. Please take the intro. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the right mood for it. Why are we punchy to stay? I'm Kitty. I'm Dan. I'm Gail. Hi, everybody. And uh, when you get this today, you'll probably be getting like three episodes all at once because I've been severely delinquent in my production schedule, but oh well. You have a good excuse. You weren't well. I wasn't You well. were saying, you, I, we stopped because you, have, you were saying that the writing went well, despite the fact that you were yeah, feeling well, I mean, I didn't, get, I didn't write a lot, but what I wrote was, uh, the story is turning out really interesting. I'm currently at 8547, so I had a 1,200-word day on Saturday and a 300-word day on Sunday. But the story is becoming really interesting. I'm now firmly out of the framing device and into my uh, protagonist finally starting to explain what he was doing in the snowbank dying on this hill. And uh, Good. Do you have a working title for this project? or Yes, uh, Marking the Gray Dawn. Cool. I've got about eight working titles, but that's the one I like best so far. <laughs> I love that. I'll do that, too. Where I was like, I think I've settled on a title. And then, like, as I work within it, in that title, I'll be like, maybe I don't like this type of title. Maybe I want a different one or something. Yeah. My favorite ones are the ones where I get the title first and then write the story to fit the title. Because then I don't have to worry about it. It, it, yes. it almost always works. But if I start with an idea and no title, then quite often at the end when it's time to publish it, Kitty will be like, so what do you want to call this? And I'm like, I don't know. I've been thinking of it as book 33. Yes, exactly. <laughs> my uh, my current uh, project, the first title is really good, and I'm really happy with it. Although it's probably going to be metadata, a metadata nightmare, but I don't care. Um, and then the second one is also pretty good, and but it's this third one that I'm like, it works for the trilogy, and it mm-hmm. it's correct for like the monic like the conceits i've come up with behind the monikers and stuff but i'm not like super thrilled with it but it's the third one so i have time to figure it out and maybe change it to something else but there you go you were about to say i was about to say some sometimes i'll be at ready to or editing it for publication and the working title is the uh mars travel logs or something like that <laughs> <laughs> and like that, this is boring. It, yep. it it is just the the title that that <laughs> helped you finish the book. Yes, exactly. It was just the title that was like this is shorthand for the time being. Mm-hmm. Then you got to go like do some title hunting and yeah, yeah. The the, sure the book look at the searchability and all that sort yep. of other other stuff that yep. is the Mars travel logs was also at different points called the Arms of Ares and Reality TV on Mars and Red Route <laughs> One and none of them worked. And Kitty's like, call it Death Flight to Mars. It's what it says on the tin, and I'm like, that actually works pretty well. <laughs> that is a good title. Yeah, there you got it. Well done, Kitty. <laughs> Uh, so how are you with your editing and other sorts of tasky things? Um, I believe I am at 220 pages altogether. Okay. I'm more than half, I'm, I think more Is that than... Is 220 in this volume or 220 all the volumes? Altogether. Okay. Um, so I'm just under halfway for this book. Okay. Um... 
and they should get done in the next couple of days, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Then I can beat Dan over the head with it and said, fix, fix these typos. <laughs> there's always typos. No matter how many times you go through it, there's always typos. It drives me bonkers. Endless. Typos are endless. The only solution I've found to that is to run it through all of my... So I have beta readers, and then I have a, a, a private group that's like super fans um, who help mm-hmm. me with various different parts of things. And um, the only way I've found to have a completely clean copy is to put it through all 36 of the super fans and have oh like my God. literally... All of them read the thing uh, to catch all of the mistakes. Oh, wow. And even then, like, maybe... Even then, they'll still creep through. It's amazing how insidious they're because our brains don't actually read the words. They, like, they, our brains are like predictive text algorithms. They're like, oh, I recognize those front two letters and those two letters, and in this context, that word should be there. So that's what I'll see, regardless of what's on the stupid page. Yes. um, Like a coffee mug that's got a joke that has um all the words spelled wrong uh, uh, yeah three sentences and it was like this each one is misspelled in such a way that it, it that you misread it and you get like because your brain tricks you into seeing a word that makes sense instead of the word that's actually there and it's like you read this wrong you read this wrong too <laughs> <laughs> There was a meme in the early days of the internet that was like, how many F's are in this paragraph? And there were a lot of of's in the paragraph. And like, generally speaking, if you go through (laughs) and scan to count the F's, you don't see any of the of's because your brain re-identifies that word. And it was just an interesting, like, early early thing about how, yeah, how terrible we are at copy editing our own work. At at perception in general. (laughs) We've all got virtual reality devices that we think are scientific (laughs) instruments. Admittedly, it's a good survival, but like, it is. Simple recognition. (laughs) And if we we weren't able to do that, we would, we'd be out of a job because people would look at the symbols on the page and go, why did you spend all that time scratching? (laughs) (laughs) It, it is a good thing for authors that humans are programmed to see more tigers in the woods than there are actually are that's true it's true i have some uh feedback and stuff from the wait wait, wait. let me oh, report wait. my numbers oh yes 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 you have to report your numbers and tell us what's going uh, this on this is just for this is just for friday because i don't i don't write usually right. on the weekends unless i'm on a writing retreat i will be in on a writing retreat reporting in uh Woo-hoo. during part of this this run so you guys will get to witness if my word count if and when my word count goes up because i'm on a writing retreat okay. but um which it should but at the moment i am at 14733 so 14733 so you got about 1900 over the weekend yeah that was my friday, friday count yeah, yeah. Not that's bad. pretty but i mean i almost always am targeting about 2000 a day so yeah. that's that's pretty normal. oh boy i want to get back up to 3000 a day i'm despairing of doing that this month well then it's, don't but don't if you can't don't push yourself well yeah no it's just when when i hit that groove it feels so good because it, that's you know we, there's those different thresholds where it becomes effortless and that's one of those yeah uh, getting to it it, with all of the other shit that I've got to do this month. Be, uh, someone was, uh, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point, but someone sent in a question about, haha, I think I figured it out. Dan picked January because there's more days than in, in November. <laughs> Not my January, man. 
<laughs> no, and I should say it was me who pushed for January. And that's just because I don't do anything in January. So like I pull back on under in, in normal circumstances, I don't travel or anything like usually in generally, I usually try to like really focus on a writing project in January, just in general, because I feel yeah. like quite apart from everything else, it's a nice if you are a writer, it is a nice way to start off the year. Yeah, if and you to can get at least fair, something in the back. Yeah. And to be perfectly fair, I was expecting my January to be relatively uneventful. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. So feedback. <laughs> feedback. Yes, yes. Uh, we have feedback from Simon. Um, I don't know, uh, Gail, did you hear the episode I did on um, someone saw me ranting on Twitter about how dumb sports are and so said, so tell us why humans have sports. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, great. Now I have to defend sports. So, yes, uh, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is a feedback on that episode from Simon feedback on the question about the purpose of sports, but it also links with Gail's story. The way Dan described the buzz from watching a sportsman do something incredibly well and the ability to feel part of a tribe also made me think of the experience of watching a live music concert, especially the heavy metal I love. And it's not necessarily seeing those at the peak of the game, even watching someone playing to a few hundred people and playing better than I ever could gives me chills down my spine. I came to concert going quite late in life, but it's one of those things I love most now. I'd be interested to hear Gail's thoughts on this, and it seems to be exactly what she's writing about. That is kind of true. I didn't think about that. Um, and I'm going to go quickly into like a trope thing for a second, but we'll, we'll come back to, because I think Dan will have more to add to what the commenter said. But the first thing I think about from a writerly perspective with these narratives is they are uh, monikered in, um, in the author community, particularly the romance community as band of brothers narratives or sisterhood narr narratives. Oh, now, um, that essentially means within the romance genre, it is a group of protagonists that you can spin each different, so each different member of the band can have their own romance novel. So you have a five-member band, you get five romance novels out of it. So, but it's often used in military, with military context. Mm -hmm. So it'll be like a, you know, a Green Beret team or something like that. And then the romance author will give each military their their romance. Um, and, and it does not necessarily have to be like one gender anymore like they're more mixed up than that now but it can also be things like you know like a caper team or a hacker team something like leverage has a band of brothers component to it which i gravitate towards because it is a found family thing now there is something like extra fun and special about it in the different scenarios like a sports scenario because that you have all of these sports romances hockey team romances that kind of a thing that again they play on the band of brothers but there's also a end game in place that's a little bit acts a little bit like the the <coughs> excuse me the prom in a ya book <coughs> but it's like you can have the playoffs, right? And then you have outside agency and stressor for the team to go up against. You have an enemy team. You can do rivals yep. and tropes and, and bad boy tropes and all that sort of a thing. Uh, you can have somebody who doesn't quite fit in with the team who like evolves to being a team player through the course of the narrative. I'm being very cliche here. Yeah, no, what, I, what's hilarious is as you're describing all the cliches, the film that keeps popping into my mind is Cool Runnings. They yeah, I was going to say sci-fi does this. 
Yeah, you can do this with what essentially is the one bed trope as the one spaceship trope where mm -hmm. you put a band of brothers in a contained unit hot yep. plate situation and then you know firefly is another good example of this and then throw a bunch of uh, crises at them and the the hot plate situation allows the um, intimacies to develop whether you're writing a romance or not but also like personality conflicts and all that sort mm -hmm. of thing and all the the band of brothers just implies that they must band together in order to have success as a portion of the narrative right. and so um both rock star romances or or anything that involves like a band fits into this but also sports teams and stuff and interestingly enough to tie back to what the questioner was talking about i started one of one of the like inciting events for me writing the series I'm writing and researching this was my personal interest in um, uh, like collective fan obsession. I'm thinking about something like the BTS army or something, but also a lot of the early psychological and scientific papers on the subject do sports hooliganism. So mm. the uh, the academic research in this field started with sports hooliganism which right of course the jocks always get the attention and then it it moved into <laughs> it moved into bands and um musical obsessions with both like single artists in the terms of celebrities that obsession and stalker and that sort of thing but also into like collective group euphoria experiences and mm -hmm. um loyalties in terms of um some bands over other bands under the context of say music festivals or that sort of thing and and only more recently has it delved into things like um fandoms in terms of, of what we would think of in the sci-fi fantasy community as fandoms but mm. but fandom um, you know, wars like star wars the, versus star the, trek yeah and the fandom wars have been around since the first science fiction conventions in like the 1920s they have but people haven't really researched them it's been mm -hmm. like just as critically disenfranchised yeah. in a way as, academia, <laughs> as, as literary yep. academia has disenfranchised us yep. uh, so but there's there's now starting to be more work in fact there's a um there's a category of like of psycho psychoanalysis that is like fanishness basically um yep. uh, fanisms um first so yeah so, so were in like the second century or the seventh century I mean, to, to no. this has been around. <laughs> Ni Ni nice. I don't think Nicaea was a science fiction convention. Yeah. That was more of a developer dating. <laughs> well, I mean, this has been around for as long as we've had sporting events. To bring it back to sporting events, and in, um, presumably, you know, or orators and speechers, speech makers, of actors, and those sorts of things all had like celebrity status in ancient times, and and. Yep. Prior. Oh, yeah, the, the gladiators were like uh, were like the WWF of the era. The Rome segregated into color camps mm -hmm. based on who which charioteers <laughs> you supported for chariot races and that kind of they were hooligans like in the oh, like yeah. kind of they, traditional sense. They have the, riots and gang wars about it and all sorts yeah. of fun stuff. Yeah, depending on which yep. chariot team you supported and that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. So so but it's an interesting sort of all of this to say it's the sort of flip side of these two human psychological um, experiences in the nature of like kind of tribalism and um, to, to look at it from both the perspective of the band of brothers themselves, the performers or the or the um, 
sportsmen or whatever, or sportswomen or, or, or the team players uh, versus the consumer of that end product that yeah. they're generating in terms of both like how obsessed you might come with that, become with that, but also in the positive side of it, which the person who wrote in is talking about, Simon is talking about, which is this sort of like euphoric experience of art. Mm-hmm. which you don't get like from a writerly perspective is not the same as the experience of reading art or even mm-hmm. in it's going into a gallery and experiencing a yeah. like a static piece of visual art the experience of a performance art a play a musical a mm-hmm. band a, a sports activity is materially different psychologically for humans to engage with and for me that's what's interesting yeah so so to to bring back around what he was asking how does um the how does virtuosity and the experience of witnessing virtuosity play into the way that your stories put together well that was like the primary my primary driver for this Mm. is like my initial sort of five sci-fi thought process was basically like what if you had a musical experience that is like that i've only had this with a actual musical before where i was an audience member for a queer reimagining of um the musical oklahoma Mm -hmm. relatively recently at the oregon shakespeare festival and like it was this incredible euphoric experience for the audience. The audience was just like with the show in a way. Mm-hmm. And also the show was being so groundbreaking that you could actually feel people's minds around you being opened. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of how it was using a very familiar narrative to say something entirely different by twisting the casting and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it was, it was a, unbelievable experience that I probably will never forget as long as I live. Um, and I, I know that some people have that with their favorite bands or, you know, at a, when their sports team wins or whatever, like it is mm-hmm. a kind of pleasure euphoria in the brain. That's not dissimilar to say orgasm or something like that, mm-hmm. but it is more, I don't know, intellectualized or yeah, something. It's, 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 it's it like revelation. It, it, it is like rebel. It yeah. is a religious experience, and so that was what caused my whole like world to be built. Is they it is it's my entertainment system from these aliens is a religion. It's couched in religious terms. They treat it like a religion. It's proselytized mm-hmm. like it's a religion, which is not not dissimilar to how someone will behave around their favorite band yep. <laughs> or their favorite sports team, right? Like what, you proselytize by yep. it. What's um, What's fun about that is that. Uh, that's one of the big drivers for me writing the Suave Rob books was the same thing is I've got the character uh, Suave Rob is at that, uh, at that middle point where he's, I position him kind of like an intermediary between the audience experience and the um, revelatory experience because he's, he does his thing because he's chasing the revelatory experience of, uh, of doing virtuosity and he's doing it by walking in the shadow of his idol. And he's mm-hmm. conscious of the fact that everything he's doing is going to be experienced by people below him the same way. And so it's one of the thematic explorations that, that I had fun with through those, through those books was looking at how virtuosity intermediates uh, relationships and uh, a weird kind of spirituality and other stuff like that. Yeah, and and yeah, exactly. So that was the like, 
that's exactly like the the under one of the underlying principles and so like my my experimental thought process for the sort of sci-fi aspect of this was like what if you took that musical experience that what essentially is mostly an audio experience um and made it a visual experience and so what the aliens in my universe can do is convert music into a visual uh multimedia kind of ink like all all surrounding bombarding vr kind of experience so in other words music becomes a uh, color and pattern and as part of that the aliens emit a pheromone so it's a visual pheromone instead of a smell pheromone it's a visual pheromone and and that has this euphoric quality uh, which of course is also both like somewhat addictive and also affects people differently affects affects non aliens differently so it affects us humans differently and so this is all the repercussions the, the, these books are about the repercussions of what happens when you have an art form that is essentially kind of both a religion and slightly addictive but then early like kind of speaking in tongues and like you know uh tent pole tent mm -hmm. raising like yep the, uh, the, the creatures yeah like there that is that kind of euphoric experience that people would have you know being touched by god is mm -hmm. to me as an atheist like not dissimilar to being touched by art or being touched yep. by music or being touched by sports mm -hmm. it's all this um this euphoria of a kind of group experience it's being affected by the i think the herd brain is involved it's not just an individualist like one-on-one -on -one relationship to art mm -hmm. and as a writer almost all of my relationships to art as an art form are one-on-one. -on -one. It's me and the page and producing it. And so I was really just really excited about the idea of exploring an art form that is a collectivist art form. And so a lot of the other conversation that this trilogy is having is around collectivism as well. Like what we do as a group, what we experience as a group, how some experiences are only capable as groups mm -hmm. um, and, and how that, interact like how that impacts like humanity and the nature of what it means to be an individual and mm -hmm. in a in a society where some of the best things you can get in life only happen as a group so now yeah, as a long answer <laughs> hey it was a good one uh do you want to jump in for anything you look tired today brain died yeah <laughs> brain died brain died <laughs> you're, you're the rest of you is remarkably animate for brain death <laughs> <laughs> oh well i suppose we ought to get on to the writing of the words yes we ought to get on with our day if we have no other or we can save any other qu uh, questions or anything for let's see later Dude, yep we've we've got other questions we can do later all right. Oh uh, cool. yeah. So well, I'll see you guys, a, guys in a couple of, days. Have good writing. Try yes. try to stay on top of it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. It. And uh, and 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 even stay on top of the podcasting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Upload. <laughs> indeed. All right. We'll see all of you guys tomorrow. Good night, everybody. Bye.